Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I want to examine a book called Christianity Cross-Examined. Subtitle, Is It Rational, Relevant, and Good? It's written by Ken Samples, who's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, an organization that uh, I like and I've dealt a lot with. Talked to several of the people there. The head of it is uh, Hugh Ross. We've had him at our church. Uh, interesting individual, very sharp in, uh, guy. And Ken Samples can uh, do amazing things when it comes to writing. I can't believe it. He just puts out so many good books. One was called Without a Doubt. Another good one was called God Among Sages. So this one is taking a look at objections to Christianity and uh, the challenges, he says, are no longer things about, gee, is Christianity true? He said, these days, people want to know if Christianity is relevant and if it's good. And so he addresses several of the tough objections that could be asked of uh, Christianity. Gary Habermas gives this book a thumbs up. I wanted to look especially at chapter 6. Well, let me, uh, I'll just give you a quick run through of just some of the other chapters. Hasn't scientific discovery made God unnecessary? Who needs faith when we've got science? Or what about this? Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Isn't Christendom hopelessly divided? And on and on. Can Christianity make sense of longing and suffering? So he takes some, some tough issues. Well, the, the chapter I wanted to look at, just personally a, a favorite of mine, is called, is chapter 6, Was the Emergence and Spread of Christianity Natural or Supernatural? You know, some people might say, well, it's just natural, just things fell together just right. But Ken's answers that it was supernatural and natural, that all these factors fostered the start of Christianity. Now he says, of course, according to the book of Acts, the one thing that really ignited the Christian faith was the re resurrection of Jesus. And if you hadn't had that, then how does the church get going? It doesn't make any sense. So he spends the first half of this chapter talking about, is there good evidence to support the resurrection? And he says, yes, there is. And so I find this so amazing because our Christian faith hangs or falls depending on the resurrection, doesn't it? So he says, let's consider the empty tomb and post-resurrection appearances. Says, you know, the very fact that the Jewish leaders presupposed a vacant tomb ended up as evidence in favor of the resurrection. And the resurrection account, he says, emerges from a very early source used in the Gospel of Mark. Now, one New Testament scholar that he quotes, John Robinson of Cambridge, now he's a liberal, he says that Jesus' burial in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. Another thing that is interesting about this event is that no occupied tomb has ever been venerated as Jesus' burial place. Now, usually famous religious leaders have their graves given special honor, but Jesus is revered, but there's never been any grave or tomb that people talk about and so um, and revere. He's even got, and I say he, I'm talking about Ken Samples here, he's got like 20 evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't want to spend all the time rattling them off, but let me just give you some of these to give you an idea of how powerful he builds the case. One, Jesus' tomb was empty. His enemies conceded the tomb was empty. No tomb has ever been venerated as belonging to Jesus. Jesus appeared alive to many eyewitnesses following his death. Now, 
of course, non-believers are going to say, well, they just thought that Jesus showed up. They longed to see him so badly. So we'll talk about that in a minute. In a minute. The documentary sources of the resurrection story are considered reliable. Testimonies come from direct eyewitnesses or those close to eyewitnesses. This ties into the, uh, the uh, podcast I just did called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, here's another point that brings a very little time passed between the actual event and the earliest records. He says the canonical gospels bear no resemblance to later apocryphal stories. So it goes on and on and on. Like I said, there are 20 evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, according to the Apostle Paul, in some of his letters, he talks about Jesus appearing. And it says the appearances varied as far as the time of day and the location and the kinds of people present. Sometimes he appeared to men and women or friends, skeptics, enemies. And it was day, it was night, it was indoors, it was outdoors. And of course, some people are going to say, well, it's just a hallucination. But he says, wait a minute. He quotes Gary Habermas, who's probably the world's leading expert on the resurrection. He says, hallucinations don't transform lives. lives. Uh, I thought that was a good point. He says, nobody has any uh, record of these people recanting. Skeptics of the resurrection should note that if they reject a miraculous explanation, they have to come up with two alternatives that are naturalistic alternatives. How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain the numerous eyewitness sightings? So he talks about the early reliable testimony, and I think I'll skip over that because I've covered that in other material. Um, what I think is fascinating is he references creeds that are inside Paul's epistles. He says these epistles have all sorts of references to the resurrection, and his earliest writings date to about 20 years after his resurrection. And he says if you look inside those statements of Paul, like in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1, he weaves into his epistles early Christian creeds and hymns that believers were reciting and singing within just a few months of Jesus' resurrection. We're not talking about something 100 years later that people are putting together. And he gives an example, a very famous example. It's in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. And I think it's worth quoting because... This thing is fabulous. Here's what Paul is saying. Remember, this is very early. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's uh, Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And it says, even critical scholars believe that this creed is one of those early proclamations, one of the earliest bits of preaching about Christianity. And it says, uh, he quotes Gary Habermas again as saying that Paul probably got this information from Peter and James when he's in Jerusalem. That was about a half a dozen years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean he, he made it up then. It was already done, and he received it then. And it says it's, it's all there. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. Um, one New Testament scholar, James D.G. Dunn, D-U-N-N, says, This tradition of the resurrection and appearance, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. 
So once again, we're not talking about years and years and years going by and everybody's memory getting faded and people dying and things like that. There was no time for myth or legend or any kind of embellishment to get going. Okay, so let me skip ahead here. Some more things about why do we believe the resurrection really happened? What about embarrassing details? That seems to be evidence of an account's genuineness. It's called the criterion of embarrassment. So it's probably true because why would you invent something that would embarrass somebody? So what do we get here about the gospel writers and Jesus' life and death? Well, disciples deserted him after his arrest. Peter denies knowing him. Some of the disciples doubt the resurrection reports. They're out hiding. The disciples are hiding from Jewish leaders. And then we've got women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Wait a minute. Women? Well, in that time period, a woman's testimony was less considered less reliable than a man's. If you're going to make up a fictional story, you're going to have Peter, or you're going to have John or Matthew. Somebody's going to be the first one there, but it's the women. Okay, so, and of course he talks about another reason he believes that the resurrection really happened is the transformation of the apostles' lives. I mean, they knew whether Jesus was back from the dead or not. So, as he puts here, no sane person is willing to suffer and die for something they know to be false, especially if they help fabricate the story. So, it says the disciples were nervous and fearful ahead of time, and then an amazing transformation takes place. They become bold preachers and, in many cases, martyrs. And uh, so... Then they change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why you can believe in the resurrection. Another section talks about skeptics and enemies that got transformed. Okay, that's important too. Think about Saul and how he got changed. He then focuses on what's called the minimal facts argument that Gary Habermas put together regarding the resurrection. He says, if you talk to scholars who are skeptics or agnostics or super liberals it doesn't matter he says most of them will agree to this jesus died by crucifixion very soon afterwards his followers had some kind of experiences they thought were actual appearances of jesus number three their lives were changed number four these things were taught very early soon after the crucifixion james the unbelieving brother of Jesus became a Christian. And number six, Paul also became a believer. And both of them, because they said they had an experience of the resurrected Christ. Now he says, even critical scholars will concede all of these things. Well, how else can you explain this? Well, there are alternate theories. One is the resurrection was mythical. Oh, really? Well, it's eyewitness reporting, and it's back at that time period. Here's another alternate theory. Jesus' disciples stole the body. Well, it doesn't account for all the data, especially the missing body and the disciples' transformation. Why would you be transformed if you were busy stealing a body? Maybe women went to the wrong tomb. Well, really? Nobody could figure out where the right tomb was? Here's another theory. Well, Jesus only seemed dead. They call that the swoon theory. Well, really? So Jesus drags himself back to his disciples and says, Hey, guys. I'm the Messiah. I'm back from the dead. And you're going to say, no, you're just one lucky guy. It says, Romans knew what they were doing. They were pretty efficient when it came to executions. And what about the hallucination theory? That doesn't explain the empty tomb. It doesn't explain why skeptics who didn't want to believe in Jesus 
James and Paul, for example, why did they become believers? Uh, well, what about a twin brother? I think that's kind of the Islamic approach. Jesus had a twin brother. There's no evidence. And why would an imposter go through something like this? So there's the first part, that it's a cumulative case, right? So you can say, well, there's the supernatural part. What about the natural part? He said, what factors also contributed to the rise of Christianity so quickly? He says the Roman Empire, especially the army that kept things peaceful, the building of the roads, the universal language that would allow material to spread quickly. He said also is the attractive compassion of Christianity. All people are made in the image of God. Christians believe that. Everybody deserved respect. And people put that into practice as early Christians. They tried to provide food and shelter and clothing from people in need. There was no economic or healthcare or safety net in the Roman Empire, but the early Christians helped people out, and that made a big impact on that society. They set up hospitals. They set up hospice centers. They took care of the sick and the dying. They were countercultural as far as no class distinctions, right? They weren't they didn't want to divide, didn't believe in dividing people up according to race or gender or class. So they set aside these distinctions. They found unity together. Also says uh, it's widely accepted that the death of some of the early Christian martyrs had a huge impact on people, attracting them to the faith. Another thing that is a natural uh, cause would be there was a growing interest in monotheism. I mean, you think about mythologies. They have all these capricious gods and goddesses that act like teenagers with raging hormones and doing all sorts of terrible things. But monotheism was different. There was one all-powerful God. There's a coherence there. And he was unchallenged. And he was good. And he was faithful. Another thing was the universality of early Christianity. That, that appealed to a lot of people to say that anybody was welcome to come join of course, he says another huge feature, a natural feature of Christianity that made it so popular was the fact that salvation was a gift of a loving God that would forgive sins. Can you imagine if you're burdened down with all the things you've done and you're being told you have to do all these different exercises and rites and rituals to get rid of it? Uh, the other thing is that the Christian teaching that God is love was a real magnet for people that had been taught to basically fear the gods you know don't don't get them mad at you he also says the work of paul his ministry spread the gospel message in a, an amazing way also constantine now he says whether he was a genuine christian but he said he ended up very sympathetic to christianity and helped spread it so the idea is the birth of christianity started because of Jesus' resurrection and he said there are natural causes as well, various social and cultural and religious and political factors. But he says that was all orchestrated under God's providential plan of history. So again, this book is called Christianity Cross-Examined, easy to read, lots of good sources that he uses. And uh, I would recommend that one uh, for you to wrestle with like he wrestled with and think you'll come to the same conclusion that you can trust Christianity. Well, thanks and uh, talk to you another time.